0: Amen. Please be seated. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 3. I do have the text in focus on your outline, but I will read a few verses prior to verse 15 of chapter 3 to acquaint us with the context. Again, this is one of the more difficult portions of Scripture to divide up for preaching because it embodies such a unified thought, and there's continuity that must be maintained. And so I take ten verses to look at when normally I may take two or three, Uh, But really it's necessary, otherwise we'll have a disjointed view of what Paul is teaching here. Uh, I will uh, tackle the rest of chapter 3 next week as kind of a part 2 to what we're saying here today, or what Paul is saying and we're uh, studying. So please pay close attention as I I read this passage. It's involved and as much to it, but I have great faith that you will be able to follow. And uh, I also will pray that God helps me do a good job helping you to follow. I figure if he used a donkey to talk to Balaam, then my chances are pretty good anyways, that I'll be able to communicate his will to you. Uh, so please now hear God's holy word as I begin Galatians chapter 3, starting at verse 10. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, "Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. through faith to give a human example brothers even with a man-made covenant no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified now the promises were made to abraham and to his offspring it does not say and to offsprings referring to many but referring to one and to your offspring who is christ should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one. But God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Let us pray. Father, there are many words here from the Apostle Paul. Give us alert minds to delve into what this text says to us. Lord, remind us of your gospel again. Faith in Christ alone. I pray, God, that you would encourage my brothers and my sisters here as they hear of this ancient message you have given, the gospel. And the way you have assisted in our understanding of the giving of the law, the guidance that it continues to grant your people for in Christ. I pray, Father, that you would be glorified by all that is said, that if any word be spoken that is not according to your word, that is not true, it would fall from the ears of the listeners. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, there is much to be explored in this wonderful passage in Galatians. Remember, the backstory story is he is writing to correct the distortion of the gospel. The gospel message is we can be right with God by faith in Christ who has lived a life we could not live and he's paid the price for our sins. God accepted that price and as we trust in Christ, we are made right with God. But the Judaizers, these old Jewish uh, religious folk, came in and tried to add to that message of Christ the need to be Jewish, to follow certain Jewish rites and rituals, and distorted the gospel, making it no gospel at all. In fact, the first portion of the book is very harsh, speaking really to those people who are distorting the gospel and those who might become swayed by it, and it's sharp in its tone. But then we come to chapter 3, in this passage we're looking at in particular, and now he finally refers to them in a more congenial way, calling them brothers. Now he's talking to the people who have to think about what he's been saying, that justification comes by faith in Christ. Being right with God comes by faith in Christ, not by relying on our works or the things we do, obedience. So now he has to address a very important issue that has to be going on in the minds of the Jewish listeners and those who have been listening to the Jews. Well, what about the law that the Jews talk about so much? Now, by this time, the law had taken on all sorts of extra stuff, just whole books written on how to interpret the law that was given in the Bible. And so there's a certain stigma attached with the concept of the law to those who adhere this. But there certainly is something called the law that's God's word and it's important for us to know. And how do we relate with it? It's the right question. People would want to know this. Now, before I go into that, let's think of this picture for a moment, realizing that analogies have their weaknesses. Nothing is perfect when you're doing this. But let's think for a moment of what a sheepdog does. Now, a sheepdog is given the task of guarding And protecting and even to a degree guiding the flock. Oftentimes they would start in one place and have to be guided to another place, a place of safety, maybe a valley with a meadow and water, some cover. If weather would come, a place for the shepherd to look out, if there would be predators that might seek to harm the flock. And so a sheepdog had this job of constantly running around the edges of the flock and leading them in the direction they would go. Uh, They would feed as they go, and the sheepdog would nip at them if it had to to keep them in order and in line and would constantly keep the stray one uh, in the flock, and they would move to a place of safety, and they would get to the place of safety, and then the sheepdog could rest and maybe sit off to the in the corner. Still there, but off in the corner. And think of what that meant in the life of one of the sheep. Uh, you had this constant guidance that sometimes felt restrictive, but it kept them going to where they needed to go, where the shepherd wanted them to go. And through difficulty and turmoil, it protected them in ways that may not felt good at the moment, but it was the right rule for them and it helped them and it got them to a place where they could then rest and be safe and know that they were, they were where they could actually have some security and, and some peace. And, and it's not that they stopped listening to what, uh, or following what the sheepdog to train them to do. In fact, those things still helped them and guided them, gave them parameters that assisted them, but their security wasn't in that sheepdog, but rather the place that they now had been resting, where they had been led to. Now, think for a moment about the law of God as it's given through Moses and the purpose it has in our lives, in the life of the church as God has been redeeming first he calls Abraham Abraham by faith believes the promise given to Abraham is that he would bless him with offspring singular as Paul notes ultimately Christ would be the one and and before Abraham there's this promise of the gospel back at the time of creation after man fall where God promised an offspring from the woman to crush the head of the serpent. That's the picture of the gospel, the promise of the gospel made manifest in Genesis 3. Then given some particular form through the promise made, the covenant promise made to Abraham in Genesis 12, 15 and 17. So now you have this promise that's been in place for so long. And we come to the time of Moses. He calls them out of Egypt and he gives them the law at Sinai some 430 years after the time of Abraham. The law given at Sinai was like that sheepdog. It it gives definition to the people of God. It guides them. It protects them. It directs them. And ultimately, it directs them to Christ. And when in Christ, it's not that that sheepdog goes away or anything it taught is void, but rather now there's a security in Christ and its purpose, part of its purpose has been fulfilled. And now in Christ, we rest. And that work of the guardian aspect of the law has been given over to Christ in His Spirit, who takes that eternal truth and makes it real in our lives. It has this guardianship through these years to bring us to this place where we know Christ. Now, in that light, look at verse 23 and verse 24 of the passage before us in Galatians 3. It says, Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Now, it doesn't mean that the law has no bearing, but the guardianship of the law, its purpose to bring us to Christ, has been fulfilled. We learn, very importantly, that the ancient promise of the gospel that outdates any other claim another world religion may have, started back with the promise made to Adam and Eve or in their hearing The promise of the sending of one to crush the head of the serpent who would be bruised by the serpent on the cross. That ancient promise, that covenant promise, weaves its way throughout all Scripture. There are many themes that go through Scripture, but the main one is the promise of God to send a Redeemer for His people. That promise, ultimately, is what goes throughout, and the giving of the law helps enhance that promise, not hinder it. In fact, the covenant promise of God's grace through faith in Christ was not nullified in any way by the giving of the law, but rather it was really enhanced as we study and understand what it was, why it was given, and its purpose. Now, first, let's ask ask and answer a few questions that will help us understand this rather complex portion of Galatians. First, what is the covenant promise? I've used the term multiple times. Look at the passage, starting at verse 15 down to verse 25. You'll see the word promise used seven times. Related closely to the concept of promise is covenant. Look at verse 15 and 16. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. In other words, when a covenant has been made, a contract has been made, it doesn't get pushed aside for another one that's still in place. That's that's man-made, let alone a promise God makes is what he's saying. Verse 16, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. Now, please notice covenant and promise used somewhat interchangeably. And the terms are basically synonymous. We don't use covenant, I will covenant with you on something. We talk in contractual terms. But promise basically means that we have will or intent to do something we say. That's what promise means. As it relates to God, it's the will and intent of God to give or provide something. Covenant is the legal term or the contractual term to describe the seriousness of that promise. So they can be used interchangeably. But when we're speaking of God, unlike little commitments we make and don't keep, when he makes it, it's covenantal. It's contractual. It's sealed in the blood of his son. And so that's what we mean when we say covenant promise. What is the covenant promise? Well, Look at verse 16 more closely. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. Remember the promises back in Genesis. We'll consider them in a moment to make him a great nation, uh, to bless the nations through him. But notice the careful interpretation Paul does of the words of Genesis. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring, singular. It does not say and to offsprings. Now here's why it says this. He's talking to a people who are being assailed by the Judaizers, who are essentially saying to be right with God, you really got to be Jewish. You've got to be Jewish. That's that's the thing. And so by saying and pointing out that the promise to Abraham was not particularly or not solely an ethnic promise, it was for a short time as he built up that nation to bring forth Messiah. But the long-term view was always that the offspring would be who God would fulfill his promise to Abraham through, and that offspring is Christ. And so to be rightly related with God, it's not about being Abraham's offsprings like that is his children, his progeny, Jewish. It's to be right with the offspring, Christ. So to be a son or daughter of Abraham, which we'll learn in chapter, later in this chapter, verse 27, 28, 29, to be a son or daughter of Abraham is not about ethnicity. It's about being right with his offspring, who he fulfills the promise with, Christ. Very important concept to understand as we learn about the gospel And also how we relate to the law of God that he has given. Verse 17, this is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God. Meaning that the promise to Abraham was not nullified somehow by the law that was given. And now was trying to be imposed upon these new believers. So he then goes into an explanation of why the law was given. But for now, the covenant promise refers to ultimately the promise of Christ in his coming. It starts back in Genesis three verse fifteen, and the promise of the gospel happens immediately after the fall of man. But then listen to the words that God speaks to Abraham, as we start to see how He will fulfill what He promised in Genesis three fifteen. In Genesis fifteen five, God brought him outside and said, "Look toward heaven, the number of the stars. If you were able to number them," He said to him, "So shall your offspring be." And he believed the Lord, and it was counted it counted it to him as righteousness. So by faith, Abraham believed God about this promise. And then later in Genesis 17, 6, really chapter 12 of Genesis all the way to chapter 17 shows the formation of this commitment that God makes to Abraham. At least it's being explained to Abraham over this time period. In Genesis 17, 6, I will make you exceedingly fruitful. And I will make you into nations. And kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you. Throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. I will be their God. So this reference is ultimately fulfilled, as Paul notes, by the offspring Christ. So the promises of God that we think of in terms of national Israel or corporate Israel are ultimately fulfilled in the one true obedient Jew, Christ. It all is given to him. So we partake of that inheritance that was a promise from Abraham by faith in Christ. That's what he's teaching. That it's through Christ. We're justified by faith in Christ and the inheritance we receive that's the fulfillment of the promise of Abraham comes to us by union with Christ through faith. An important concept for the church newly beginning with Gentiles now to understand so that they weren't weighed down wrongfully by certain rituals and rites that made them more culturally acceptable as Jewish people rather than recognizing what made them a son or a daughter of Abraham was faith in the offspring that God was faithful to fulfill his covenant with. The promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. offspring, Verse 16 of Galatians 3 says, which relates directly to Genesis 17 and the language therein. Now, the covenant promise is ultimately the promise to make a great nation, redeem a people through Christ. What then, all this reference to the law continually in Galatians and throughout the New Testament and into the Old, obviously. What is the law? Why is it given? What's its purpose? It's important for us to at least address that in a cursory way. We can't address everything there is to say about that. It's complex. Volumes have been written on it. There are multiple ways to describe and explain this relationship. I'll do my best with what we have in the text here, drawing from the totality of Scripture just slightly this morning. But it's important. We read this and sometimes maybe we zone out, oh, the law, that's not for us. You hear enough of that on the radio and then you have this extreme view, which I call anti-law, where you just, oh, that, we're under grace. And then you just zone out on what a huge portion of the New Testament speaks of. We ought to know what he is saying regarding the law so that we are not misinformed, that we don't disobey. So, what is the law? Why was it given? What's its purpose? Verse 17. So, this is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, after what? The promise made to Abraham as a context. So, this is what I mean. The law, verse 17, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God. So, he's referring specifically here, by using the word, the, the phrase, the law, he's talking about what was given to Moses in particular at Sinai. That's what happened 430 years after Abraham. That's how we know that's what he's referring to. Now, this is where it gets a touch complex. What did he give Moses? We all know he gave Moses the tablets with the Ten Commandments on them. Most people know that. It's, it's placed in place, even in public places still. Where it's allowed, it's there. That's what we think of we think of the law. But recognize that he gave Moses, over the course of several days, much more than just those tablets. Those tablets are, are the embodiment of the, of the righteousness of God and his character. And they're given in form for humans to follow so that they can understand a bit about God's righteousness and, and other things. We'll, we'll get there. But first, that's the moral component. We call that the moral component of the law. Uh, but there's more that he gave. He gave, in connection with the moral component of the law, he gave an elaborate system of civil laws that people could follow that would help them uphold the moral portion. Uh, They they seem unusual to us because of their context. Like, why would you build a trellis on top of your house? Well, the reason was in case someone might fall off and die. Uh, Protect life because part of what's embodied in the moral aspect of the law is not murdering. Life is sacred, so protect it. And, And the list can go on. The civil code basically is given to them to help follow the moral code. In addition to that, there was an elaborate system of ceremonies and rites and rituals accompanying the plan for the tabernacle, eventual plan for the temple, where sacrifices were brought. Various kinds of sacrifices, not just bulls and goats, grain offerings, so forth. And those things ultimately come together to point towards our sin and our need for a Redeemer to redeem us, to buy us from our slavery to sin. And those sacrifices ultimately picture Christ. So this is what we're thinking of when we think of the law in its totality. And the Jewish people here, the temple's still around, so there's still a practicing of the Jewish people who have not received Christ carrying out these things. But these Judaizers would claim they were Christians, that they believed Christ, but certain aspects of the law they were drawing back from and telling the people they need to follow them. And so Paul is writing to correct this so they understand what the purpose of the law really was. Now we understand very briefly that Those divisions of the law I gave, while disputed as far as how you would actually divide such things, we would agree in general that the civil component of the law, while good case law shows how you can apply the moral law, was relegated, at least to some degree, to the people of God under God's direct rule, the nation of Israel at that time. The portion that we call the ceremonial law, that has been completely fulfilled in the sacrifice of Christ. No more bulls and goats and grain offerings needed. Christ fulfills that. So what remains firmly are the Ten Commandments, the moral component of the law. This is what we would say is the usual understanding or division of God's law, what we mean by the law itself. Why was the law given? What was the purpose of the law? Look at verse 19. It asks that question, why then the law? Well, the answer It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. So in other words, the law was given because of sin until Christ came. Now, it's not claiming to give an exhaustive answer to the law, just addressing the portion that would most meet them where they were dealing with problems. It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. It was clearly from God. Okay, it was given to help with the issue of defining sin and the transgressions that were in their midst. They had to know what those boundaries were. Remember, when the people received the law, where were they just before that? Many years in Egypt, under a pagan system at best, following a a system of polytheism that's like the Greeks and the Romans later, And so they came out without definition and they had their prophet Moses and limited access to him personally. And so the law is given so that transgressions could be known. They could know what was right and what was wrong because they didn't have that ability in their time of slavery under the Egyptians. It's a terrible time for them to live and exist. So the law is given because of transgressions. It defines transgressions. Let me give you a few things that we can learn about why the law was given, the purpose of the law. Just a few First, we can see, even in our text here, that the law is a righteous revelation. It it, it teaches us about the character of God. The text we just read, why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, so that we would have definition of what sin is. And when we know what sin is, and we understand that God is holy and righteous, we see what he is not. And so it gives us a picture of the true character of God. In verse 22 of our text, it says the scripture imprisoned everything under sin. So that the promises by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. We wouldn't know of Christ's great value if we didn't understand what sin is. And so it imprisons in the sense that it gives definition to what happens so we know what's sin and what isn't sin. Is unpopular as that is today. That's the, one of the great blessings of God's word. is It tells us like it is what's true. The law is given. It's a righteous revelation about the character of God, but also several other things. The law sets forth before us God's righteousness, as I've said, and then connected our inability to be righteous by obeying it. One of the sure messages you get when you read the law is that I cannot fulfill this. And so what does it do? It teaches us what sin is. We've got to know. The law in this light, in this sense, is a teacher of sin. It tells us what it is. We learn also that the law cannot be kept by sinful people. So then what does it do? Well, one of two things. For the believer in Christ, it drives us to Jesus. I can't keep the law. Jesus did. And God accepts Christ. And I trust in Christ so that I am accepted by God and justified by God. So it has the effect of teaching us sin and then driving us to Christ, the Redeemer. It's a wonderful blessing of the law to drive us to Christ. The only place we can go for refuge. The problem is, if one is not in Christ, the law ultimately brings clear legal condemnation to those who reject Christ or are not in Christ. Uh, The person who does not trust Christ in his work remains unjustified before God. They cannot rely on works of the law because they cannot keep them. But in their mind, they say, and people say this all the time, "I'll I'll stand before God with my good and hopefully outweighing my bad, as we mentioned last week. And for that person, they stand cursed. They're unjustified. And the basis for the legal case against them before the throne of God will be their breaking of the law in manifold ways. So for the person who's not in Christ, utter condemnation comes from the law. It's the basis for why God can condemn us. Now, the law, though, for those who are justified by faith in Christ, takes on a whole new role. The law for the Christian is not null and void, something irrelevant to be ignored. Instead, it becomes a a guide for us about what living in Christ is. Now, we speak, and I hope winsomely that our goal as believers who trust in Christ is to be like Jesus. I want to become more like Christ, knowing that my position in Christ is fulfilled by his work, that he gives grace, and he gives grace to be more like Christ, well, what's a simple definition for what Christ-likeness is? What did Jesus do? He kept the law. Now, he did it perfectly, and it was the means to earning our salvation. We can never do such. He's done. But now the Spirit of God works the image of Christ in us, which is ultimately manifested by obeying God's commands. In fact, the Great Commission is what? To help people make disciples and help them to obey whatsoever I have commanded. Not be antinomians. Notice, they not reflecting the character of their Savior. But what Paul's writing to address here is this trust and faith in the law for their salvation. And this can never be the case. We learn here that the law is the teacher of sin. The law drives us to Christ. And the law for unbelievers is ultimately something that brings legal condemnation to them. But the law, when viewed through the position of faith in Christ, is a rule of gratitude. Think teacher of sin drives us to Christ and a rule of gratitude for those who are in Christ who can now follow his word. With joy, not out of fear that he'll reject us if we fail, because we will fail, but a rule of gratitude now that we can reflect God based on his grace. In this light, how does the law relate to God's covenant promise that he gives to Abraham? Well, we know it doesn't render it void. It says as much here. It's his commitment to send Christ to redeem his people. That's ultimately the covenant promise. The law had so many great benefits for the people of God in this time, defining them, guarding them, directing them, that served as a guardian, just like that sheepdog, bringing them to a place when Christ came. Verse 25, but now the faith has come. We are no longer under a guardian. No longer under a guardian. The law does not have the same place in our life as it did before Christ came and gave his spirit, the guardian component of the law's work is no longer the same. Verse 26, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, it says in verse 27. And listen to verse 28 and verse 29. We'll study it more thoroughly next week. But again, it's connected to this context we must hear it. There is neither Jew nor Greek. Think about the person listening to this. This is important. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Talking in the context of what it means to be justified. There's no division between people based on ethnicity or these other things. In verse 29, and if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring. Heirs according to the promise. The promise to Abraham. To be rightly related with Christ. That's how you're a son or daughter of Abraham. So he's saying effectively to the Judaizers, you may not even be sons of Abraham. You think you are, but you only are if you're in Christ. If you have faith in Christ. If you believe on Christ. If you rely upon Christ. If you trust in Christ. Only then are you really a son of Abraham. So you really got it all wrong. These new Gentiles may not know as much as you about theology and doctrine and they don't have the background or the rites of the ritual. But guess what? They're sons of Abraham and you're not powerful what he says in Galatians. The law relates with God's covenant promise in that it reveals the character of God that he is now forming in us through our relationship with Christ. The law is not a means of salvation, but a guide or a rule of gratitude for what God has done for us in Christ and the specific issue here that Galatians is referring to is the idea that works of the law could somehow justify, and they never could. That wasn't the design. The law was never given to save anybody. So why does understanding all this matter? Why is it important? Well, let me give you a few reasons to consider and think of as we close. Why does understanding all this matter? This is a complex portion of the Scripture. I knew by preaching in the first service, and it's a sleepier group, uh, the super elect maybe, but a sleepier group. And I understand this is heavy stuff and I get a gauge on it when I talk to my kids after. So did you understand this and so forth. But please recognize that this does matter. It's important in the overall argument of Galatians, which is overall a bolstering of the true gospel message of justification, being right with God by faith in Christ alone. It could be a more important issue for the church to be vigilant about and continually repeating. So why does this matter? Well, first of all, Salvation has always been through faith in Christ, not by works. It's such revelation uh, that about this may have been more veiled at certain times, but the law itself was never meant to be a means of salvation. And any such teaching that would say that there's one way of salvation in the Old Testament and a new way now is erroneous. It's always fun by faith. We just have a clearer picture now because we're on this side Of the giving of the the scriptures. We have this. I'm so much happier, humanly speaking, living now than living in David's time. Nevertheless, recognize the place of the law in the life of every believer. Never been to make them right with God. Verse 21 in our text says, Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if the law had been given... That could give life then righteousness would indeed be by the law in other words if that was its purpose to to give righteousness or to make one right then that's what it would have been called to do but it wasn't that's not the point of it secondly the law must be viewed through the lens of Christ you've got to see the law through the lens of Christ on one hand we should not be legalists who view the law in such harsh terms that it has to be applied in, in ways like the Jewish Pharisees did. That, that's one side that's erroneous. But on the other side, which you see so often today, and I think passed off as people just don't want to study it, I think, is on the other hand, we should not become anti-law or anti-nomian and say that the law has no bearing on the Christian today. Well, it meant something to Jesus. He kept it. David, who had to be re- rightly related with God by faith we know his works we know our works he said this he said blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked nor stands in the way of sinners nor sits in the seat of scoffers but his delight is in the law of the Lord and on his law he meditates day and night so clearly the lens through which David is seeing and writing and living is different than what the Judaizers were bringing to bear in the Galatians should be different for us too See, I can delight in the law if I know it's not what saves me. I delight in it because it's important to God, and it reflects Him, and He'll help me. He's already accepted me in Christ. Now it's a rule of gratitude. That's the lens through which we now see the law. The law must be viewed the way David describes in Psalm 19. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rule of the Lord is true. The righteous and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey, and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant worn, and keeping them there is great reward. And he's not talking about eternal reward by way of salvation. He's already talking to a covenant person who is by faith related to God. He's saying, now, in this light, as you live this way, things will happen well for you. And one of the most beautiful commandments is the one about honoring your father and your mother. If you're a father and mother, you know how imperfect you are. Yet God says, as we honor our fathers and our mothers that your days will go well for you. You'll live long on the earth. It, it just connects with it a practical reality about following God's wisdom and His righteous reflection. Not so that you're right with God. That's been done for you in Christ. But now because you're in Christ, you can see the law in a way in which you say, I delight in it. Its guardianship is no longer needed in the same way. Third, this is a word of encouragement to those in the church, those related to God through faith in Christ. Only Christianity can really claim antiquity. You hear world religions claiming this, but only Christianity dates back to the giving of the gospel after creation, immediately. If you look at other world religion claims, you see that Christianity, unlike the rest, are not uh, some come-lately fads. It really is the original. Buddhism, you know, it started 400 years before the time Christ was born. Ancient to us, no doubt. Something that happened 2,400 years ago is old. But it pales in comparison to the gospel being given right after creation. Hinduism, it's a constant debate as to when it began. And even if you give it a time that predates Abraham, it still doesn't predate Adam and Eve. Islam, which is often touted as this ancient religion, it came 600 years after Jesus. Judaism and Christianity share the same origin, but Judaism fails as it rejects Christ and misses the fulfillment of the ancient promise of the gospel. Understanding this does matter. Christianity and the gospel of faith in God's Redeemer is as old as creation, and the covenant promise of God's grace through faith in Christ was not nullified by the giving of the law, but rather, really, it was enhanced. Let's pray. Father, help us to apply these complex words, these verses that appear in Galatians, apply them to our lives, that we have an even greater, greater appreciation for the, the simple gospel of faith in Christ. Lord, yet there is a great, wonderful complexity that you have worked by your providence to bring us to this place of understanding. I pray, Lord, that we would look upon your word as though it is honey from the honeycomb and that we desire to eat it, to ingest it, uh, to just really soak our minds in it. as it, they, The word contains what we need for life. I pray, God, in a very practical way that you would help us shake free from any bonds we may have to the notion that we can make ourselves right with you by following rules or being obedient or doing certain deeds. Help us, Lord, to trust Christ all the more in his work on the cross for us so that we might be transformed and reflect Christ's character by obeying, by responding to you with gratitude. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.